everyone, and welcome to the November 6th edition of the Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. An appellate court confirmed that the course of employment ends at the employer's property line. In this case, Rose Jones was employed at the University of California Irvine campus as a director of scholarship opportunities. At the end of her workday, she exited her office at UCI's Science Library, walked to her bike a short distance to the bike path on Outer Ring Road, mounted her bike and began riding toward her home. And after riding for about 10 seconds, she reached a trench cordoned off with orange posts and caution tape. So she swerved and attempted to brake, but fell off her bike and sustained injuries. She then sued the university for premises liability and negligence, and her husband sued for loss of consortium. The university moved for summary judgment, arguing that her injuries occurred within the course of her employment and that the exclusive remedy rule barred her lawsuit. And the trial court agreed and granted the university's motion for summary judgment, concluding that the exclusivity rule barred Jones's claim based on the premises line rule. The Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of Jones versus Regents of the University of California. Under the judicially created going and coming rule, an employee's injury while commuting to and from work is not compensable, absent special or extraordinary circumstances. In an effort to create a sharp line of demarcation as to when the employee's commute terminates and the course of employment commences, courts adopted what is known as the premises line rule, which provides that the employment relationship generally commences once the employee enters the employee's premises and ends when the employee is leaving the work premises. Highlighting the merits of the premises line rule in a 1976 opinion, our California Supreme Court explained that the premises line has the advantage of enabling courts to ascertain the point at which employment begins objectively and fairly. Thus, the Court of Appeal agreed with the employer that conclu- and concluded that the workers' compensation exclusivity rule barred Jones's claim because it occurred in the course of her employment as a matter of law. Her accident occurred on UCI's campus, undisputably owned by the university, just after she left her workstation, and the premises line rule brought Jones's injuries within the workers' compensation scheme. And in employment law litigation, the California Supreme Court is set to review what's called the neutral time rounding rules in a highly watched and controversial case. Neutral time rounding is a commonplace and efficient timekeeping method used by countless employers throughout California and across the country. When applied neutrally, when time is rounded both up and down, time rounding reduces employees' overhead costs while providing employees with flexibility when clocking in and out of work. 
Theoretically, over the long run, the compensation for each employee will average out, leaving employees with the same total compensation that they would receive under a system that rigidly recorded their time down to the minute or second. In the case of Camp versus Home Depot, this is a case pending in the California Supreme Court that will decide whether employees in California are permitted to continue to use the neutral time rounding practices to calculate employees' work time for payroll purposes. This case began when Delmer Camp and Adriana Correa filed a putative class action lawsuit against Home Depot alleging that the company's quarter-hour rounding policy violated California law. Under Home Depot's policy, employees' work time was rounded up or down to the nearest quarter hour, which resulted in some employees being paid for less time than they actually worked. The trial court granted Home Depot's summary judgment finding that its rounding policy was lawful under California law. However, the California Court of Appeal reversed, holding that the rounding policy violated California law because it resulted in some employees being underpaid. Home Depot appealed the Court of Appeal's decision to the California Supreme Court, which granted a review last February, and the case is expected to be heard in the fall of 2023. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce Coalition just filed an amicus brief in this, uh, this October, urging the California Supreme Court to rule that employers are still permitted to use neutral time-rounding policies to calculate the time worked. The Chamber argues that the practice of neutral time-rounding is expressly authorized by federal law and endorsed by California's Division of Labor Standards Enforcement and has been uniformly affirmed by California's courts since the 2012 seminal decision in Seize Candy Shops versus Superior Court. In Seize Candy, the court recognized that the labor code is silent as to the lawfulness of time rounding, and thus looked to federal law for guidance, as have courts and administrative agencies in other states when interpreting similar provisions in those states' labor codes. Nonetheless, the Court of Appeal in the Camp opinion clearly said its opinion applies in the limited circumstances here where the employer can capture and has captured all the minutes an employee has worked and nonetheless applies a quarter-hour rounding policy. However, the Court of Appeal went on to say it respectfully invites the California Supreme Court to review the issue of neutral time rounding by employers and to provide guidance on the propriety of time rounding by employers especially in view of technological advances that now exist, which help employers to track time more precisely. This case has generated significant interest from the business community, as it could have far-reaching implications for employers across the country. And now our crime report. The owners of several Catalina Island businesses have been indicted for $1 million wage theft scheme. Jack Tusi and Yui May Nora Tusi, owners of restaurant and hotel businesses on California Island off the coast of Los Angeles, were arraigned on felony charges of grand labor and wage theft, 
conspiracy to commit grand labor theft and unemployment insurance fraud. The total wages due to at least 18 effective workers is allegedly near $1.1 million. And there may be additional workers affected by the wage theft. An investigation found that the employers engaged in various fraudulent payroll schemes over the course of many years to avoid paying their workers minimum wage and overtime pay, and workers were required to clock out to avoid recording their overtime. Workers had to record their overtime hours separately on paper so that it was not included in the company's payroll system. And when uh, workers were paid overtime, it was at a reduced rate, using aliases rather than their name to hide the overtime, overtime hours worked. Employers were also allegedly required to do preparation work and paperwork off the clock for no pay. Most of the restaurant workers would work at multiple locations, finishing a shift at one restaurant and then going to a different eatery owned by the Tusis to work the evening shift, since the Tusis operated multiple businesses on Catalina Island. A jury has convicted an Oakland doctor for kickbacks and healthcare fraud. Henry Jeffrey Watson, a medical doctor residing in Oakland, was convicted by a federal jury on charges that included accepting kickbacks for patient referrals to home health agencies, healthcare fraud, and false statements relating to a healthcare matter. The jury found that 67-year-old Watson engaged in three healthcare kickback schemes from 2013 to 2019. The first scheme involved a conspiracy in which Watson agreed to refer patients to home health agency Amity Home Healthcare, which at the time was the largest home healthcare provider in the San Francisco Bay Area, in exchange for illegal kickback payments. The evidence at trial proved that Watson and employees of Amity and its CEO, Amanda Singh, conspired to pay Watson regular and recurring amounts, sometimes in the form of cash payments of $3,000 a month, to ensure that Dr. Watson referred Medicare patients to Amity each month. In the second scheme, proved at trial, Watson accepted kickback payments from an undercover FBI agent who was posing as a home health agency representative seeking Watson's agreement to refer his patients to particular Bay Area home health agency. The evidence in trial included video recordings of Watson accepting envelopes of cash for more than $10,000 at forum meetings in 2017. And Watson also suggested other doctors who he believed would be willing to accept illegal payments for referrals from the undercover agent. The third scheme involved a conspiracy between Watson and others to repeatedly and falsely certify individuals for Medicare-funded home health services that the individuals did not seek and did not need. Testimony from those individuals and their regular primary caring doctors showed that the individuals were generally healthy and active, engaging in activities such as traveling internationally, shopping, walking stairs, and jogging. However, Dr. Watson falsely billed Medicare for certifying these individuals for home health care and for supervising their home health care. Other individuals involved in the scheme include Amity's CEO, Ramita Amanda Singh, 
who pled guilty to charges of conspiracy to pay kickbacks for the referrals of Medicare beneficiaries. Dr. Bupinder Bandari, Dr. Gerald Mayant, Dr. Juan Posada, all who pled guilty to violations of the anti-kickback statute, and all of them have been sentenced by the judges assigned to those cases. Watson remains released on bond pending his sentencing on February 28, 2024. A Bakersfield attorney pleaded no contest and was sentenced to two years in jail for his part in a $12.5 million scheme to overbill insurance companies for urine tests at sober living homes in Orange County. Defendants Pamela and attorney Philip Gainong owned sober living homes in Orange County, Bakersfield, Los Angeles, and San Diego through their business William May Company, which operated as Compass Rose Recovery. And they also formed a medical testing lab called Ghostline Labs. Multiple charges were filed in 2017 in connection with the scheme allegedly led by Ganong and his wife. And co-defendant Pamela May Ganong, who owns sober living homes in Orange County, Bakersfield, in L.A. and San Diego. Pamela May Ganong is awaiting trial, but her case has been assigned to a court that handles defendants who are facing questions about whether they are mentally healthy enough to assist their counsel. Pamela Ganong's sister, Susan Stinson of Carlsbad, was also charged, and she pleaded guilty to two felony counts. The court ordered Stinson and Ganelong to pay the $12.5 million restitution. Charges against the Ganong's son, William Ganong, were dismissed in 2019 after he died. Carlos X. Montano, M.D., pleaded guilty in 2018 to insurance fraud and was sentenced to one year in county jail, and his California medical license was revoked in June 2021. And in regulatory news, the documents obtained under the Public Records Act and Proposition 103 by an organization known as Consumer Watchdog reveal details of what it claims is a secret proposal drafted in private discussions with insurance lobbyists to bail out the insurance industry that the Department of Insurance Commissioner and Insurers unsuccessfully tried to jam through the legislature during the final days of this, this legislative session. Consumer Watchdog claims there are two massive loopholes that make the deal Commissioner Lara cut to deregulate the price of fire insurance in California in return for a commitment from insurers to expand home insurance coverage in wildfire areas to 85% of their market share outside risky areas. Insurers would be allowed to meet their commitment by offering bare-bones policies, the type of policy homeowners already have access to under the FAIR plan. And the commissioner could waive the 85% commitment to sell more home insurance in wildfire areas for any insurer that claims it cannot meet its commitment. Harvey Rosenfeld, the author of Insurance Reform Proposition 103 and founder of Consumer Watchdog said, These documents prove Commissioner Lara's deal with the insurance industry is an outrageous fraud on the public. 
and will make Californians pay vastly more for insurance but not get more people insured. The documents also confirm that the proposal circulating in Sacramento late last August and early September would have forced homeowners and businesses owners to bail out insurers for billions in fair plan liabilities. Consumer Watchdog also claims the deal also illegally guts the consumer protections of Prop 103 that have saved Californians hundreds of billions of dollars, including the right of public of the public to independently scrutinize and challenge rate increases that are unjustified. The commissioner's office in turn accused uh, consumer watchdog of seeking to protect a regulatory system its founder crafted from which it has been paid nearly $9 million as an intervener. The National Council of Compensation Insurance Quarterly Economics Briefing Report for the third quarter of 2023 shows that the labor market has continued to evolve in a positive direction for the workers' compensation system relative to the tight post-COVID market of a few years ago. The industry has seen job growth, turnover, and participation moving from the extremes of 2021 to more balanced levels and closer to pre-pandemic, that's 2015 to 2019, averages. However, the key outstanding question for the industry remains, is the labor market moving softly into balance or are we seeing early signs of deterioration towards recessionary conditions? Net employment growth over the past three months averaged 266,000, up from 201,000 over the three previous months. Overall job growth also continues to support growth in the workers' compensation premium base. These trends have two primary implications for workers' compensation. Higher premium growth, including audit premium, partially offset by higher indemnity severity. And current data does not contain any warning signs of an imminent recession. The California workers' compensation system is established, administered, and interpreted on a statewide basis. Nevertheless, there are sharp differences in cost characteristics across regions of the state. To reflect those differences, the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau released the 2023 WCIRB GEO study, which underscores regional differences in claim characteristics across California. The web-based interactive map allows viewers to quickly view key measures across regions. The study, related exhibits, and mapping of nine-digit zip codes to the regions referenced in the study are all available in the research section of the WCIRB website. And in medical news, a new VA study shows that the drug Paxlovid is not effective against long COVID. Paxlovid is an oral antiviral pill that can be taken at home to keep help to help keep high-risk patients from getting so sick that they need to be hospitalized. Paxlovid is the pill that has become the go-to treatment for COVID-19 and was granted full approval by the FDA for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 
in adults at high risk for severe disease, including hospitalization and death. The drug also remains available to everyone 12 and older, that is, weighing at least 88 pounds, who has mild to moderate disease and is at risk for severe disease under an FDA emergency use authorization. The drug is cheaper than many other COVID-19 drugs, and perhaps more reassuring, it is expected to work against the latest Omicron subvariants. Unfortunately, a new study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine of U.S. veterans who were prescribed Paxlovid during COVID-19 infections shows no difference in long COVID rates among groups who took the antivirals and those who did not. The results of this study differed from those of a VA study by Z and colleagues that reported that treatment with uh, the drug was associated with lower risk for 10 out of 13 uh, long COVID problems. And it has been 24 years since the Institute of Medicine's 2000 study to Air is Human report was published, drawing broad attention to medical mistakes that kill up to 98,000 Americans annually. More people die annually from medication uh, errors than from workplace injuries, motor vehicle accidents, breast cancer, or AIDS. To Air is Human broke the silence when it was published in 2000 that has surrounded medical errors and their consequences as set forth in a and it set forth a national agenda with state and local implications for reducing medical errors and improving patient safety throughout the design of a safer health system now 16 years later a 2016 study published in the british medical journal found about 2 150,000 deaths annually are due to medical error, making it the third leading cause of death in the United States, where it is more problematic than other developed countries. And according to a recent series on what you need to know about surgery, Part 7, published by Epoch Times, many states have apology laws, which are designed to allow for honest communication between physicians and their injured patients. However, the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics said apology laws do not go far enough. As of 2023, only 17 states, including California, require physicians to disclose an error to the patient. Still, some doctors hide behind the fact that the definition of medical error is vague. More than two-thirds of states have adopted laws that preclude some or all information contained in a practitioner's apology from being used in a malpractice lawsuit. The California law that requires physicians to disclose medical errors to patients is the Patient's Right to Know Act of 2018. This law took effect on January 1, 2019 and requires physicians to disclose all harmful medical errors to their patients, regardless of whether the error resulted in serious injury or death. In 1996, the Joint Commission created a Sentinel Event Policy to help healthcare organizations 
that experience serious adverse events improve safety. Since that time, the Joint Commission has maintained an associated Sentinel event database with de-identified and aggregate data. The Joint Commission has released its essential uh, Sentinel event data 22 annual review on serious adverse events from January 1st through December 31st, 2022. A Sentinel event is a patient safety event that results in death, permanent harm, or severe temporary harm. Between January 1st and December 31st, 2022, the Joint Commission received 1,441 reports of Sentinel events, and the number of reported Sentinel events increased by 19% compared to 2021. The majority of reported Sentinel events occurred in the hospital setting. That's 88%. 20% of reported Sentinel events were associated with patient death. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and our other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.